It's just after midnight, Monday, February 28th, 2022. You are listening to another edition of the Midnight Ride Podcast with Connor Coughlin and Paul Runyon. Paul, how was your week? Well, it's been sort of a conundrum for me because I was going to be cooking this weekend for the family. And I do love to cook, much to uh, to most people's surprise. I don't have a cook at the house, a private chef. I do like to cook. And I wanted to cook chicken Kiev, which is one of my favorite meals, but now I can't find it. Apparently, it's been renamed Chicken Kiev. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out what's going on there. Do you know anything about that? I don't know if the Ukrainians actually call it that. I guess they do. But Kiev just seems like one of those in vogue pronunciations that the elites try to do. I don't know. I probably will continue to call it Kiev. But that's what I thought, because even a few, I mean, even as much of a a month or two ago before all of this happened in Ukraine, you'd hear about Vitaly Klitschko and they'd say he's the mayor of Kiev. And then all of a sudden, like once this invasion happens, now it's called Kiev. And I'm wondering if that's, did like AOC start that? Is this some like indigenous thing? You know, it didn't make much sense to me. And, and now I had trouble finding the recipe because big tech has censored Kiev from the Internet. Now it's all Kiev. It reminds me of that movie Scent of a Woman many years ago where, where they said we're going to Stad and then it was Gestad. Well, I thought it was Stad, only if you've been there. Yeah. It just, it sounds, you know, right now it's, it's en vogue for the people on CNN and others to call it Kiev. I'll continue to call it Kiev, but to each his own. But Paul, you bring up the topic that's on everybody's mind today, and that is the largest land war in Europe since 1945 and the Ukrainian people fighting for their nation right now. My biggest concern there was the super spreader COVID event I saw in the Ukraine subway with people not wearing their masks. (laughs) And I can't believe that a CNN reporter was down there without a mask on. I don't think that's like the first time I've ever seen a CNN reporter without a mask. Isn't it funny, though? I mean, in the United States, people are they're still having debates over masking over a virus that gives them a ninety nine point nine eight percent chance of nothing serious happening to them. They're debating their pronouns, et cetera. And over in Ukraine, we're getting a dose of the early 20th century. This situation in Ukraine should have every American concerned because of the long-term ramifications that ultimately could draw the United States into World War III. And I'm I'm not trying to be an alarmist. We are called the midnight ride here. We do try to sound the alarm on some things, but this is real. This is a true thing. So Ukraine is a democratically elected country. It was part of the Soviet Union that And they gained their freedom when the the Soviet Union collapsed in the late 80s, early 90s. There's quite a a history there from them giving up their nuclear weapons to sort of just being treated like this pawn on the chessboard for the last 30 years. And Vladimir Putin has decided that he wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union and has made this move on them. And it's really scary. And I don't You hear so many reports and it's hard to know what's real and what's not. And I wanted to get sort of your thoughts on that. I mean, we're hearing that the Russians are having a harder time than what's going on. It's so hard to get anything from the from the media reports because there's so much like 
you know, I hate to use the term, but misinformation or rumors flying around. From my perspective, this is way out here in continental United States. I think the Ukrainians, they must be the masters of public relations. A lot of these stories, whether it's the ghost of Kiev or the Snake Island 13, the border guards on the island who told Russian warship, go fuck yourself. There are a lot of stories out there that just make you very emotional and very, for lack of a better term, proud of the Ukrainians and their heroism standing up to one of the toughest and most powerful men in the world, one of the strongest armed forces in the world, although that could be in question after this is all said and done. But I think the fact that as of Sunday, Kiev was still in Ukrainian hands and the Russian military did seem to be bottled up in a couple of places that, yes, Vladimir Putin has something on his hands. Ultimately, I think he has made a very, very big miscalculation and mistake. And yeah, he'll take Ukraine, but it will come at great cost to him. My worry is, what is the next step? What happens now? What's the possibility? I mean, if you remember the Iraq war and Baghdad Bob, who was the the public relations spokesman for Saddam Hussein, literally saying that we're in full control of the country, fighting heroically, everything's going great as like the U.S. column rolls in behind him. And I just worry that we're getting this news that the Ukrainians are fighting so well, and then it's just the Russians are just sort of biding their time and going slowly. I mean, I don't, if you look at Iraq, I don't, we didn't get to Baghdad in three days, you know? I mean, I think it took a few weeks, didn't it? Are we talking about Desert Storm or are we talking about uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom? I think we're talking about Iraqi Freedom, I think. Let's look at the distances here because we were coming in from Saudi Arabia, Kuwait. That's a bit of a hike to get up there to Baghdad. Whereas the distance from Belarus, which is essentially a puppet state of Vladimir Putin, to Kiev is not as big of a deal. That is true. If you look at it on a map, Kiev looks really close to... It's really close. It's really close. Now, granted, the Ukrainians, because they were essentially surrounded, you have to the north, you have Belarus, and your capital has to be protected. And from the news reports I was reading, there were some major military exercises going on up there with the Belarus contingent. And Vladimir Putin had about 70 plus percent of his entire armed forces surrounding Ukraine, but a lot of it was up north there. So the Ukraine had to have a, a sizable part of their armed forces up there, but then you have the the separatists in the east, so you had to have, and you already had a lot of your military there, and then coming up from the Black Sea, the potential for some sort of naval operation or amphibious operation, which I've seen some reports that that may be happening. I personally, I'm not an expert on the Ukrainian armed forces, but I personally didn't think the Ukrainians would be able to hold out this long. And that's a testament to their national pride. Vladimir Putin says, well, this used to be, Ukraine was never really a country. Russia created it, et cetera. You know, his little fake history story he gave right before coming in. But they are proud of their ethnic heritage. They're proud to be Ukrainians. You know, this is like Red Dawn 2 here. Yeah, you can't underestimate the will of the Ukrainians, outmatched, outnumbered, outgunned, and but they want to fight for their homeland. And 
on the other side, you're hearing these stories of Russian morale just not being good at all. In fact, I saw, I think this comes out of the Express in the United Kingdom. I saw Putin's war in tatters as thousands of Russians flee to escape conscription. And it says Vladimir Putin faces humiliation after it emerged that thousands of Russians are attempting to flee in order to dodge conscription. Thousands are said to be trying to reach the United States to claim political asylum, avoid being forced to fight in the war with Ukraine. U.S. immigration lawyers have reportedly been overwhelmed with requests from Russian men and their families asking if America will grant them political protection following Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. That's something that just popped across my screen and is really interesting, don't you think? Yeah, it is interesting, and it, and it sort of crushes the narrative. Having to go to war and having to fight for a cause that you don't believe in, I mean, we saw this in the Vietnam War, you know, in the late 60s and early 70s. That is enough to make anybody want to leave their country if they don't want to die for something like that. But this crushes the narrative of the left about the United States, because once again, there are people all over the world, whether it be in Eastern Europe, Africa, Latin America, more recently Canada, that want to come to the United States because it still is, as long as we make it that way, a beacon of freedom. One story I saw, Paul, that was very interesting to me was a story coming out of, I think, the U.K., reports that Russian military in Belarus were drinking heavily, were selling off their fuel supplies. That is not the hallmark of a disciplined military. But people hear reports about the Russian military and the Chinese military in particular, and their great technology. And they do. The Russians, they do have great scientists, and they actually do build things. The Chinese mostly steal them. But both of these countries have technology that rivals our own. What they don't have, I don't think, is the caliber of soldier, the caliber of sailor and airman that we do. We have the best troops in the world, and that is a qualitative advantage. And, you know, again, you're going into a highly unpopular war. It's freezing cold, and you're sitting out there waiting as this diplomacy, information warfare plays out, and you just want to go home. It's very true. And we have an all-volunteer force. We don't have conscription. We have really well-trained service members and really high morale and everything. And let's remember, the media in Russia is censored. It's crazy. You watch on DirecTV. I was at a friend's house who has DirecTV, and I had no idea that RT, which I guess is the Russian... Um, Russian television. Yeah, Russian television. They're on there. I don't understand why they're even broadcasting in the United States. It's not even like a news organization. It seems like it's a government funded. But they have things going across the bottom of the screen. And it's like, update, Ukraine using civilians as human shields. Then they show a map and they show like the Western regions of Ukraine. And it's like People's Republic of Donbass. So, I mean, the people, if you can imagine what RT is saying, imagine the kind of censorship that the people in Russia are seeing. And despite the censorship and not even getting a picture of what's going on and being told that this is their ancestral homeland and everything like that, they still don't want to fight. Because they know the truth. Listen, during the Soviet Union, people knew that what they were getting was a curated batch of lies that was 
put forth by the Kremlin and by the, the leaders of the Communist Party. And it's no different now. People know that, but it's not that much different from our people. You look at the Canadians. In Canada, apparently, the only people that Trudeau will call upon are people that are on the payroll. The CBC, all of these journalists, they're subsidized by the Canadian government. In the United States, other than communist-leaning NPR, that's not the case. But people, when they watch CNN now, when they watch or they read the former paper of record, the New York Times or the Washington Post, they know that they're not getting journalism anymore. In Russia, that has been the case for a very long time. So what you're saying is they already know it. So it's sort of, it's a situation where they just don't even take it seriously. I don't think they do. Because I know what it's what it was like back in the Soviet Union. And I think that's the case here. I want to talk about though, Paul, what happens now? Because this is a very dangerous situation. Can I say a couple things about that? So number one, and, you know, and I was thinking about this too. It appears right now, we don't know the truth of everything that's going on from, you know, you just, it's so hard knowing what's happening, but things are not going as well as expected, most likely for Russia and for Vladimir Putin. Now, we all know that Vladimir Putin is not afraid to do very sort of evil, inhumane things. He's poisoned his opponents. He invaded Georgia. He invaded uh, Crimea, obviously the parts of eastern Ukraine. Now he has this. I'm very worried what they say. If you have a caged, hungry animal, you just don't know what they're going to do. And it makes him very unpredictable at this point. I don't know if anyone has been following Marco Rubio on Twitter, but his Twitter feed has been absolutely amazing for what has been happening. Rubio, I think one of the great tragedies of 2016 was that Trump was took out Rubio with something like, you have small hands or, or, or something to that effect. He is a great statesman and a guy that really, given his background and his family and stuff, he knows a lot about freedom. He would make a great Secretary of State or even President. I really am impressed by him. I've been extremely impressed. And, you know, during that election, when Trump sort of did the small hands thing, it's like I sort of got the opinion, all right, well, Rubio's kind of a weak, dithering guy, but I've seen him sort of, he is really, especially on foreign policy, I can't, he has just been one of the most amazing people in the Senate. I think, you know, Trump was just so much more ready for primetime from a media perspective, being a media product already, whereas Rubio really is a regular guy. I mean, he lives in a regular house. He is a big football fan. He can relate to the normal guy a lot more. But, you know, there was that situation after I think he was giving the Republican response to something. And he remember he got his mouth got dry and he needed to drink water. That was just not a good look. And Trump is really good under the Klieg lights. I know he is. So one tweet that Rubio had put out a couple of days ago said, I wish I could share more, but for now I say it's pretty obvious to many that something is off with Putin. He has always been a killer, but his problem now is different and significant. It would be a mistake to assume this, this Putin would react the same way he would have five years ago. Now, take what he said Combine that with some of the discussions we've had on the Midnight Ride about getting to a certain age in life and being a world leader. Putin is 70. The Another thing that Rubio said is that the life expectancy in Russia is much lower than it is here. I think he said somewhere it's about, he's about two years shy of the average Russian. Yeah, Putin is two years shy of the life expectancy of a Russian male 
and you will spend the rest of your lives evading an international tribunal for committing his crimes. So you've got a situation here where, A, what is his thinking that he's probably close towards the end of his life? Has there been any degradation of his thinking, just like we've seen with President Biden? Look at the big guy. Yeah, look at the big guy. So where are we? What do you think, Connor, all of this together could lead to? This is very worrying. Rubio saying, I wish I could say more, means that he, in his standing as a member of the Foreign Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I think he's on the Intelligence Committee. And the Intelligence Committee. So he has heard the intel. And credit to our intelligence agencies because they have been proven right time and time again with all of these things that the president has released about Russia. It all came true. It's very terrifying. And again, this is why we need a constitutional amendment that says you cannot be a president at the age of 75 or beyond because of that cognitive decline and because of the fact that when you're at a certain age and you know you don't have much time left, you need to do things now to cement your legacy. That might have something to do with why this conflict is going on. Putin, when he moved the troops in, he warned the international community. He said, and then this was really, I think, aimed at, at the United States. Do not attempt to intervene or you will face consequences greater than that that you have ever faced in your history. Now, we face 9-11. We face Pearl Harbor. What's the difference? The difference is nuclear weapons, hypersonic weapons that Russia possesses that are better than any other nation on Earth. And when a guy feels like his regime or his standing is under threat, whether it be but from an external power or from his own people, he can be very dangerous. And I think Putin, he's gone insane. I really believe that he has become unhinged. Well, this is where I get worried. As much as I am so proud of the Ukrainians and how hard they're fighting, this is where I get worried that if their resistance is too good, that this could end up leading to Putin doing something nuts, like a uh, attacking Poland or the Baltics or using those thermobaric weapons that they have or nuclear weapons. I mean, it's, I, where does this go? I don't, this is just, the, the, the longer this goes on, the better the Ukrainians are, which is amazing and I fully support. I also get worried about how high Putin escalates this. Another tweet from Rubio is when he said, had something to do with you may have seen this one. I don't I don't remember. But he said that once the Russians get into Ukraine, they've got some the or get into Kiev, there's going to be some surprises waiting for them in Kiev. I can't remember exactly what it said, but that only is showing that it's even could even get worse for the Russians. The president of the Ukraine, I think he's an actor or a comedian. He has I wish he was our president. He has elevated himself internationally as just a real hero. I don't need a ride. I need guns. I need ammo. He has opened up the armory and said to all to all Ukrainians, come on in and we will give you guns. And these people are doing it. So it will be a knockdown drag out fight between people who are basically fighting for their homes and their children and their country against a bunch of conscripts, drunken conscripts who want to get the hell out of there. This is not going to go well for the Russians. Also, Paul, you and I are both, I would say, a little bit more knowledgeable about history and as veterans, military history than most. Nuclear weapons, the United States and Russia have the most nuclear weapons in the world. 
Back in the good old days, the United States had nuclear weapons on a lot of ships, and and I, I think we still have some in Europe, but they're mostly like big bombs and things that I think you drop from B-52s or, or other kinds of what you would call strategic aircraft. The Russians, of course, have the same. They, there was a report recently about this hypersonic weapon, and the Chinese have them too, but they have a lot of nuclear weapons, and there are small nuclear weapons too. <laughs> there are big ones and there are small ones, and Vladimir Putin and the Russians, they may not look at it the same way as the United States. Listen, here's where we really are. He is now a pariah internationally. And I saw a report in the news the other day where they arrested 1,700 people in Moscow for protesting. The numbers have been much higher, particularly in the late 2000s, uh, early 2010s. So, you know, and he deals with that very harshly. But if he feels like he's going out anyway and he's a madman, I mean, what's to stop him from doing more? So I think. Yeah. Does he want to be a martyr? I mean, that's, you know, it's like, is that his angle? I mean, is he like learned from the jihadists? But if he did that, if he did that, he would be Adolf Hitler. He would not be a good martyr. And Zelensky, you know, he may have say, I'm going to be a martyr. And he would be a symbol of strength for Ukraine. Putin is just a symbol of evil at this point. We can argue, as, as many of the Trumpists and the people on the right are saying, well, this wouldn't have happened under Donald Trump. And I agree with them. This would probably not have happened under Donald Trump. But I think it's partly because we are importing over half a million barrels of Russian oil every day because of Joe Biden's short-sighted and stupid destruction of our energy industry. However. I think the Biden administration has played this very, very well, both from an informational perspective, uh, revealing to the world what Vladimir Putin had planned and taking away all of his false flag narratives, as well as the fact that we cannot send troops into Ukraine because that would set off World War III. I fully agree. I think given the circumstances right now, they have played it generally well. I think the sanctions, I think they've gone a little overboard in sort of saying how tough these sanctions are. I think that if they really wanted to be tough, they would restrict the flow of oil and gas. That goes to what I was saying, though. I mean, the, the sanctions are not... But it's only 500,000 barrels, and it sounds like a lot, but the United, in the United States, that's not, a, that's not a lot of oil. But by doing what we did, we took away an option to supply our allies. I mean, Germany, it's 40% of their energy supply. And many other Western European nations are getting a lot more from Russia. So the reason why we haven't gone as strong on the sanctions is because a lot of NATO is saying in the EU, you can't do this because they're going to turn the lights off in our country. I know it's crazy. How do you deal with an enemy that you're like also buying oil from? I think Putin was emboldened also when the Biden administration lifted the sanctions on Nord Stream 2. Because it was almost like, you know, to Putin, it's like, well, we're not beholden to Ukraine anymore because before Ukraine had that pipeline and they're charging the tolls. Putin's like, well, if we can bypass the Ukrainian pipeline and use Nord Stream 2, then we can just go take Ukraine and we don't have to worry about supply disruptions. How would you grade? I know you don't like doing things like that, but I would give the Biden administration a D for their overall handling of this. And I'm talking about from January 20th of 2021 to now, 
But short term, what they've been doing recently, I think they've been doing the best that they can. Most of the buttons that they've hit have been very strong. But overall, between Nord Stream 2, Keystone XL, you know, stopping the gas and oil leases, and then the botched Afghanistan withdrawal have basically told Vladimir Putin, go for it. I agree with you. I would say deterrence uh, was almost an F. I mean, maybe even worse. Just given the fact that it's binary, right? It's like either, you know, we're not talking about gender here. We're talking about there's either a war or there's not a war. Binary, right? So, But gender's the same way. So, sorry, oh, people. Oh, yeah, you're right. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Thanks for correcting me. But uh, he did not deter. The previous administration did deter. There was, there was no invasion. A recent Washington Post ABC poll also said 62% of Americans believe that this invasion would not have happened under Trump. And they're right. And they're right. However, once it became obvious that the invasion was going to happen, I would give the administration an A minus. I think they've done very well. I like the way that they were telegraphing everything to the world. The public relations side of it has been amazing. I think the sort of the going up to that line of not getting involved, but supporting the Ukrainians enough to the point where they can resist, but without getting NATO involved, I think has been good. I think the only reason is an A minus is because of, I think, the press conferences that that have come from the president where, you know, you had Kamala Harris and Jake Sullivan and ever and Ned Price saying that these sanctions were going to deter. And then you get into the press conference and the president's like, everybody knew they weren't going to deter. So it's like that there was some confusing messaging there, which I would take some some points off, but they didn't manage at people's expectations because the, these are punitive actions that they knew weren't going to deter. Uh, Paul, we got wait, hold on. I know you want to go to the next segment, but we're at a critical point. So, you know, we're at an A minus now. But where does that go if Putin does something crazy based on what we said before? Does that A minus go down because of the fact that they pushed this too far? Could it have made sense to say, all right, we're not going to you know, or Ukraine saying they're not going to join NATO. And I just saw something come across from the Telegraph just now saying that Putin's putting his nuclear forces on high alert. So things are developing. Jesus Christ. Well, this podcast may never even make it into people's uh, iPhones if, if that's the case. I think we are dealing with a madman here. And I think that we need some sort of outside entity. It was reported that Biden was talking to China. They basically laughed and, and went to the Russians and, and shared information with them. But we need somebody that Putin would listen to because if things are going this bad, it could go in any direction. Agree with you on the- Who could do that, do you think? I mean, I think of a couple of people. I think of India as a large country that does a lot of business with the Russians, big Russian defense. They buy Russian defense. Is it Modi? Yeah, Modi. There's Israel, which always has a very good relationship with Russia and the U.S. as well. I think you need to give him something, whatever that is. A third party comes in with an idea to give Putin something to save face. Otherwise, we are looking at sending, I mean, we just sent 7,000 troops, I think, over there as NATO activated some sort of response force. We could have hundreds of thousands of Americans, millions of Americans at risk. And that is not hyperbole. This is a madman with like thousands of nuclear bombs. We should be very afraid. Can Ukraine say, I mean, declaring that they're going to be neutrality? I mean, is that enough at this point? Or is that you think that ship has sailed? Maybe. 
Stay tuned. Obviously, uh, watch this. Tomorrow night, you'll hear from the president in the State of the Union address. And that's what we're going to get to next. When we come back, President Biden's first State of the Union as he tries to save his presidency. We'll talk, Paul and I will talk about that up next on the Midnight Run. We're back. And Paul, this situation in Ukraine is, is so, frankly, terrifying but it really takes people's attention off of the events of the last year. And probably other than Justin Trudeau, there's nobody happier to have the focus be off of them than Joe Biden. And tomorrow night, something big's happening because I see fences around the Capitol. It looks like uh, the first State of the Union for Joe Biden. It is. It's his first State of the Union. I. This is also one of the most interesting times to have a State of the Union, as you said, what's happening with Ukraine, but also with his approval ratings so low. I mean, how do you do a State of the Union in the first year like this? You know how every president always says, I'm here to report that the State of the Union is strong. And I don't know how you can possibly say that in this context with people fleeing across the illegal aliens streaming across the border, inflation at a 40-year high, no longer being energy independent, what happened in Afghanistan, what's happening in Ukraine. Things are in an interesting spot. I mean, how do you, how do you say that? A madman with nukes threatening us. Yeah. I mean, how do you respond? What, what would you say if you were the president? Well, it's hard for me to put myself in his shoes. I mean, I might announce that we're coming out of COVID and effective immediately, we're eliminating all mandates. That would really help, I think, bridge the divide. And then I'd talk about the promise of America and maybe reference the story that you put out about Russians wanting to come here and why we are the greatest nation on earth and what we need to do as Americans to come together. But again, this guy, his policies have almost by design seemingly been to tear this union apart. You mentioned eliminating border security, eliminating our energy industry wokeifying our military. I mean, you go down the list. And then, of course, something that could be cause for division. I think tomorrow night he's going to introduce us to, he already did in a press conference, but his nominee for the Supreme Court and Justice Breyer's seat, Ketanji Brown Jackson. I believe Justice Jackson was chosen. I believe 94% of the American public were excluded from the search for that Supreme Court justice, right? That was, I think he did that solely on the basis of race and gender, correct? If I'm reading that right. He did. Much like his choice for vice president, he came out beforehand and said, I will only choose someone who is black and who is female. Now that was a promise made apparently as part of the deal. Remember, Biden got clobbered in the first presidential primaries and caucuses And then in South Carolina, he wins and everybody drops out except for Bernie. A deal was made somewhere. And uh, Representative Clyburn of South Carolina helped deliver that state to him. The voters, the, the largely black electorate in the Democratic primaries there, that was a deal that was made. But there were many qualified candidates to choose from, black female judges on the bench. But Ketanji Brown Jackson was the one recommended, apparently, by this group called Arabella Advisors, a large dark money clearinghouse where all of these super PACs feed into. And uh, I think one of them was called Justice Now. They are a group that has advocated for packing the court, and they also advocated for justice 
Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who was confirmed by a lot of these same Republicans who will be voting for this Supreme Court thing. But there were questions about her because some of her rulings have been overturned by higher courts. And it seems like for partisan reasons. Yeah. I mean, from what I can tell from her past, a lot of this looks like she's more into making policy on the court and less interpreting the Constitution. This is really a broader issue. I mean, if it sort of shows where the administration is going with this and that everything is politically calculated and giving promises to certain special interest groups in the campaign. And it's no surprise that we're in the state we're in when that's how you govern the country. It is. And I think there was a a justice, I think her name was Childs, that was a justice from South Carolina that would have had the support of Clyburn, but also Lindsey Graham who sits on the Justice Committee and has been a key figure in some of the Supreme Court confirmation hearings of the last several years. He elected to go for the the leftist partisan. And uh, these are the same people who brought us Sonia Sotomayor. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised. We ran long on the first segment, so we have to kind of shorten this one. The State of the Union, though, I don't think should be about the Supreme Court justice nominee. I think it really needs to be about unity. This guy ran on being a unifier and then he tore us apart. But I think he needs to show some strong leadership in the face of Vladimir Putin. He needs to be a lot of things, a unifier, a statesman, a diplomat. I don't know if he's up to it, Paul. It's a tough situation. We're going to have to hear the response from the media. And I know next week on the Midnight Ride, we're going to have our analysis. And there's another factor that we should probably mention real quick, which is there is a caravan of trucks making its way to the Capitol. I heard about that. I wonder how that is going to impact the State of the Union. Obviously, that's why the fences are up. The Secretary of Defense had authorized National Guardsmen to be deployed there. I pray that these truckers stay true to their word like the great example set by the Freedom Convoy in Canada, that they pick up after themselves, that they are entirely peaceful. And I think the president should listen to the truckers and listen to America. Like I said, eliminate all mask mandates, eliminate some of the vaccine mandates, and and let's focus on other things. Let's take care of people at risk. But um, I pray for our president. I hope that, you know, every day, you know, I pray for his health. Obviously, look at his vice president, but also because this is the man who, this is who we got, right? And so we need him to make good decisions. I I agree with you. I think he's done a great job in the short term here with the situation in Ukraine. But Putin on Sunday, he sort of stepped things up to a whole nother level. And uh, we're going to need all of our men and women in uniform, all of our diplomats, everybody in government to really stand up and be strong. 100% agree with you. And uh, we can assure that here at the Midnight Ride, we are fully supporting the leadership of this country to uh, make the right decisions in this critical time for the country and for the world. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating and uh, tell a friend. You know, our numbers continue to grow. We hope you enjoy this show. And uh, given the situation right now, we'll just say, Hope you went to church yesterday. Hug your kids and your your spouse a little bit tighter and cling to those principles of of freedom, of democracy and and really of kindness and humanitarianism in this very difficult time. I will pray for you and all of your families 
And uh, we hope to see you again next week on the Midnight Ride podcast with Connor Coughlin and Paul Runyon. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 